All right, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Pastor Caleb asked if I wanted to, you know, take his next message on cessationism versus continuationism. I said, you can, you can deal with that. I'll, uh, I'll do something easier tonight. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2 is what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking in verses 24 through 26 this evening. Is it Christian to be quarrelsome? Given how we often act, you would think that uh, that might be a tougher answer. But we know that Christians are not called to be quarrelsome. Should believers love to pick fights? No. But we kind of love doing that sometimes, don't we? We know the passages that describe the Christian life as a battle. And we've heard, even in our Sunday evening series, how important it is to know the truth and to stand firmly on the truth. And when error arises, we must boldly confront error. That's a biblical mandate. We are called to do that unashamedly and unapologetically. But the Bible also tells us to be compassionate and gentle. Sometimes I fear that we view these two as mutually exclusive. Either you're a person who boldly confronts, or you are a person who is gentle and compassionate and doesn't confront. But the Bible takes both and blends them together. And in our passage, we'll see a phrase correcting your opponents with gentleness. So how do we correct with compassion? That's what we're going to be looking at this evening. We've been hearing in our Sunday evening series a lot of theology, a lot of truth. And we've seen the implications of when you lose the truth or you drift toward error. And the Bible tells us that, that we must guard the flock, we must guard the truth. And tonight we're going to be asking the question, how do we do that? But let's, let's introduce the passage and see if we, we, uh, we know what's going on here. If you're familiar with the books of First and Second Timothy, you're aware that Paul wrote these letters to a young pastor with practical instructions on how to conduct himself in the church and how to run the church. In chapter 2 of Second Timothy... Paul exhorts Timothy to focus on his God-given task of protecting and proclaiming the truth and preserving his congregation from error. Let's look in our passage, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 22. He tells Timothy what needs to be true of his character. He says, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him, to do his will. Starting back up in verse 22, he tells Timothy what needs to be true of his character. He must flee youthful lusts and pursue these things. 
He tells them to, he tells them to avoid foolish and ignorant controversies in verse 23. And rather than being a quarreler, or as the King James says, he must not strive as a idea of quarreling or arguing, Paul gives Timothy three character traits to pursue. He says, first of all, you need to be kind to everyone. As you proclaim the truth, you must be kind universally to everyone. He must not be harsh, cold, or arrogant toward others. Rather, he must show kindness universally to every person he interacts with. He also told Timothy, you need to be able to teach. He must be competent. He must be grounded in the word and ready to share the truth with others. And then thirdly, he tells him, you must be patiently enduring evil. That Timothy, as a pastor, must bear up under mistreatment without becoming resentful. These are the character traits that Timothy was supposed to pursue. And given these character qualities, Paul then shows Timothy what those character qualities look like in action. And the phrase that he uses here is the one we're going to be focusing on tonight in 2 Timothy 2.25. The text says, In humility correcting those who are in opposition. Perhaps your Bible, your version says, correcting his opponents with gentleness. With gentleness. The King James here renders this phrase in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. Perhaps you see that there. But this isn't talking about instructing those who are somehow opposing themselves. It's it's people who are opposing the truth. The NIV puts it this way, opponents must be gently instructed. This is how we are to confront and correct error with gentleness. Well, what does gentleness mean? Or humility. This carries the idea of courtesy, meekness, or as one dictionary translates the word, the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. I really like that definition. And so Timothy is given this command. When those who oppose the truth of God's word stand against your sound doctrine, you must correct them boldly, but you must correct them with gentleness. This command tells us not only what we must do, but how we must do it. Now, I'm not going to be spending much time on the what this evening, because I think we as Christians tend to be better at that, the the correcting part, We're we're all about speaking truth, as we should be. But what we struggle with often is speaking that truth with gentleness. And there's no question that our world needs truth, and needs truth desperately. And this this didn't go past Paul. And if you read through 2 Timothy over and over again, he talks about how bad things are, and how sneaky false teaching is. But even in that context, he says, correct with gentleness. Timothy was to be kind, patient, and gentle. And I think we fail often in this regard. We wrongly think that as long as what I'm saying is true, it doesn't matter how I say it. That's not a biblical way to think. We must be firm on the truth, but we must also be kind in our conduct. And this is a difficult task for many of us especially those of us who aren't naturally gentle. And yet this command doesn't offer exceptions for those who don't naturally possess that quiet, gentle spirit. This is a Christian trait. And it's one that shows up time and time again in scriptures. 
Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Titus 3, verses 1 through 2 says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 12, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. 1 Peter 3, verses 15 through 16, In your heart, honor Christ as the Lord, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. No doubt, this is a difficult command to follow, especially in the face of what? Opposition. Timothy is told to approach people this way when he is being opposed. And I think this is why Paul tells Timothy in this passage that that gentleness really flows out of having the right goal in your correction and having the right view of the person you are correcting. This passage shows us both both of those things. And I would argue tonight... And we ask, how do I correct with gentleness, especially when I'm being opposed? What if I'm not naturally gentle? This passage shows us if you just focus on the right goal in your correction and you view that person the right way, gentleness just kind of happens. We'll see that in our passage tonight as we look at correcting with compassion. First of all, let's look at that first idea. The correct, you must consider the goal of your correction. We see this right after the the command where he says, correcting your opponents with gentleness. Look at what it says next. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. How we correct is greatly influenced by our goal in that correction. And this passage presents a clear contrast between quarreling and correcting. Verse 24 says, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel but be gentle to all. What's the difference between quarreling and correcting? Well, you might argue that in both cases, someone might have a passion for the truth. The goal of communicating that truth is vastly different. What is the goal of quarreling? It's to win a fight. Right? To come out on top. And we see what quarreling produces. Turn, uh, uh, I guess, back, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look in verses 4 and 5. It says, He is proud. This is, this is a false teacher in this, in this case. Knowing nothing, but he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Christians are called to a battle, but they are not called to love a fight. I think Scripture tells us that being argumentative is not a Christian character trait. So if the goal of quarreling is to win a fight, what is the goal of correction? 
is to win a soul. The word for correction in this passage carries the idea of assisting someone in their ability to think appropriately. It's the idea of giving guidance to somebody. And while quarreling focuses on the argument, correction focuses on the person. While quarreling views others as enemies to be conquered, correction views others as souls to be won. How you approach someone is greatly impacted on your goal in approaching them. I mean, think of it just in normal life. Your demeanor, your tone, your choice of words, greatly influenced by what you want to accomplish in that conversation. You know, a stand-up comedian will have a much different demeanor, tone, and choice of words than a negotiator in a hostage situation, okay? Why? Because there's two different goals there. And those goals are going to influence what they say and the words they choose not to say. The tone, how they say it. The goal greatly impacts that. What is the goal of the Christian when he is correcting someone who is opposing them? Well, the passage tells us. What's our goal? First of all, it should be repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Correct your opponents with gentleness, it says in verse 25, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. When you correct someone who's in error, you should do so with the intended goal that God grants them repentance and they come to see the truth. If we're arguing, if we're quarreling, if we're only focused on winning that fight, then we're not concerned about the person coming to a knowledge of the truth. Should a person who is in error really have to hurdle over our harsh words and our harsh demeanor in order to repent? Or are we coming to them in gentleness so that they're led to repentance? And perhaps you say, well, here's the thing. I I know they won't repent. They're too stubborn. This passage never says that repentance is the guaranteed result. It says God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And even though it's not a guarantee, it's not even up to you who, uh, who grants repentance and who doesn't get repentance. God does that. And God still calls us to be motivated by this goal when we, when we correct the error of others. When our goal is repentance, our approach is gentleness. Is this not the heart of God toward us? Romans 2.4 says, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And he calls us, as his followers, to correct in the exact same way. So our goal in correcting must be to lead them to repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. What else should be our goal? Well, let's keep reading in our passage. Verse 26. That they may come to their senses... And escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Okay, now, be honest. When you feel like the other party isn't thinking clearly or has a screw loose, (laughs) does that evoke kindness, patience, and gentleness in you? No, it does not. In our sin and our pride, we conclude they aren't worth my time and energy, so I'll drop my truth bomb on them and walk away. 
But while that first phrase, come to their senses, might evoke impatience in us, what does the second phrase evoke in you when it says, they may escape the snare of the devil? Yeah, maybe they're not thinking straight. But it's because they're ensnared by the devil's lies. And your goal in correcting them is to free them from the lies of the devil. Do we trample on people in order to destroy their bad theology? Do we laugh and mock at those in error as if they are beyond repentance? Do we see the correction of their theology as more important than the salvation of their souls? I'm not saying that bad theology shouldn't be corrected, it should be corrected. But what is your goal? You know where this shows up most? You're probably already thinking it. Social media, right? Anyone brave enough to go on Twitter, just out of curiosity? No hand. Great. Stay away. Um, it's, it's a horrible place. Um, there's something about hiding behind the safety of a keyboard or a phone that makes us think we can disregard the person behind the error that we are attacking. But this shows up in our relationships too, doesn't it? While the passage applies specifically to false teachers in the context of the local church, this principle really applies to every relationship. Do you crave quarrels? Do you love just winning an argument? If so, that's not a heart of love. That is, as 1 Timothy 6.4 says, a heart that is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. When you have to correct your spouse, your child, your friend, What's your goal? Is your goal to win a fight or is your goal to win a soul? And if your goal is the person, your correction will be gentle and loving. If your goal is to win a fight, then you could care less about that. Think about it. Your words of correction could be the means by which God grants them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Your gentle guidance could be the life-giving, hope-providing truth that helps them come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. That's your goal. And if that is how you view the conversation, don't you think that might impact how you have the conversation? And just as a caveat here, this should go without saying, but make sure you're standing on God's truth before you confront. Relationships are destroyed when both parties are firmly convinced they are in the right. And the person over here is firmly convinced that that person is in a snare of the devil. And the person over here is there in a snare of the devil. And we're just waiting for the other person to repent, right? That's that's how quarreling and arguments and, 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 and friction in relationships start. And we could preach a whole separate sermon on Christ's command to take the beam out of your own eye before removing the speck that is in your brother's eye. But kind of the the presupposition we're laying in this this passage is, is the assumption that you have the truth, you have the biblical truth, and the person you're talking with does not have the truth, that they're clearly in error. And in that case, what are we to do? Be gentle. So we are to consider our goal when we correct. But secondly... I think this passage tells us to consider your view of the person. Do you know why we're so argumentative and quarrelsome with others? I think in part it's because we just don't love people like Jesus does. We don't view people like Jesus does. 
Now, the Word of God does have some strong words to describe those who promote false teaching. It also sometimes prescribes some strong responses. We must stand for the truth unashamedly. And Jesus often reserved strong words for those who were deceiving others. But instead of using those examples as an excuse to throw love and gentleness out the window, let's ask the question, how did Jesus view others? can't tell you how many times if I've had a conversation with someone who's maybe being too harsh, and I say, hey, you should be more gentle. And they'll say, well, Jesus flipped tables. Okay. <laughs> All right. Jesus called the Pharisees vipers. And usually what that is doing is I'm using this as an excuse just to excuse my lack of love. Over and over again, when we're called to correct, as we saw in the passages earlier, we are called to do so with gentleness and with kindness. Let's consider how Jesus viewed people. Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why did he have compassion? Well, because of how he saw them. How did Jesus see them? As being people harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this was a crowd of sinners. This is a crowd, no doubt, full of adulterers. Liars, perhaps even murderers. We don't know. It was a large crowd. Jesus knew more than anyone that this multitude was made up of rebels and sinners who deserved the just punishment of God. But how did he see them? As harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And what response did this produce in his soul? A deep compassion for them. What did Jesus say when he was on the cross, when wicked men nailed him to the cross? He said in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus viewed people with compassion and gentleness. Now let's look back at our passage and ask the question, how was Timothy supposed to view those who were blatantly opposing him and threatening his church and his message? Verse 26 says to view them as those who have been ensnared by the devil after being captured by him to do his will. There's a vast difference in seeing someone as the devil himself and someone who is ensnared by the devil. One image evokes hatred, animosity. The other one evokes compassion and gentleness. So who's the ultimate opponent here? The devil is. The devil is the father of lies, and he has been so from the beginning. Just as Adam and Eve were both guilty of rebellion against God's command and also victim of Satan's lies at the same time, we could say, in a sense, every sinner is a combination of both criminal and victim. Standing in rebellion against God while also being trapped in the snare of the devil. And if you're in your correction of others, you only have intolerance and anger toward their error and not a shred of compassion and gentleness toward this person, you are not viewing them as Jesus views them. Instead of seeing our opponents as the devil himself, we should see him as someone who is being captured by him. Many of you may be familiar with a very popular Christian novel written back in 2007 and was later made into a major motion picture called The Shack. 
When the book and movie were released, debates arose like crazy regarding the theology underlying this, the message of this book. And while the book is popular among many, it it's actually is filled with some wrong theology in it. It teaches that God is not in control, but in the author's words, God submits rather than controls and joins us in the resulting mess of relationship. The author of the book believed in universalism, that there is no one goes to hell, everyone gets saved. The author believed that God did not plan the cross, and that for the father to require the sacrificial death of his son was, was the same as basically cosmic child abuse. And, and, and these theological beliefs made its way into the story. And so, because of that, it's my, it's my clear conviction, the message of this shack, with the theology of its author, Paul Young, must be clearly refuted. But a while back, I remember watching a video of Paul Young's personal testimony. And I listened as he described the pain he had experienced in life and the past sins that he regretted. He talked about how his controlling, abusive father influenced Young's view of God. He talked about how brokenness that sin had caused and the relationships it destroyed. He described how he used to view Christianity as nothing more than a facade to hide the pain, trying to maintain an image so that others didn't see the suffering. And it was from this pain and brokenness that Paul Young wrote The Shack. And if you read the book or watch the movie, you actually see that Young's depiction of God and Christianity is basically the exact antithesis of his past. He depicts God as a loving mother figure instead of a controlling father figure. He ignores eternal punishment and says that God didn't plan the cross because that would make him, as we said, a cosmic child abuser. And as a result, Young does present a picture of God that is unscriptural. Why? Well, he fashioned his theology out of his pain. The fact is, many people do this. They've been mistreated, abused, deeply hurt. And it's common for them to form their own custom-made theology that eases the pain of their past, even if that theology does not line up with Scripture. We might just do that in, we might do that in our own lives to some degree. Now, does this make their teaching somehow more tolerable? No, it should not. We, we shouldn't look at the, the, the sympathy of a story and say, well, I guess the error isn't that bad. No, we should still say the error is bad. It should be refuted. But what does it add to the equation? In my aversion to Young's theology and my sympathy to his story, which should win out? Neither one. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And in fact, it should be our compassion for the false teacher that should drive our correction of the false teaching. Paul Young was still in error. But when you consider the full picture, when you consider where error comes from a lot of times, It adds compassion when you view them as being captured by the devil to do his will. You know, there will be times when you must confront error 
without knowing the whole life story of the one who is teaching error. And I don't expect you, when you before you confront error, make sure you sit down with that false teacher and hear their whole story. You can't do that. But let's, let me ask a question. Should being ignorant of someone's life story cause you to err on the side of harshness or gentleness? If you're going to pick a side to lean toward, wouldn't it make more sense to, to lean toward gentleness because you don't know their story? If you don't know, there's all the more reason to correct with compassion and gentleness. And in addition, even if you don't know their story, you do know enough about their story to evoke compassion. What do you know about their story? They're believing a lie, and they're ensnared by the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That in and of itself should evoke compassion and gentleness in your heart. Without a doubt, Christians should be truth tellers. We should be those who boldly proclaim the truth, regardless of the opposition. But the incredible grace of Christ, which has entered our hearts and forgiven us, should show itself in our correction as we, as we oppose and correct with gentleness and kindness and grace and patience. We are to speak the truth in love. So don't sacrifice love for the sake of truth, but rather speak the truth because you have love in your heart. Next time you, you are confronted with error and God leads you to correct that error, first thing you should do, number one, what's my goal? Is it the person or is it the fight? And then secondly, ask yourself, how am I viewing this person? as the enemy himself, or as someone who's been captured by him to do his will. And when you do that, when you, when you make sure your goal is right and your view is right, gentleness will more naturally happen. So even if you're like, I'm not naturally gentle, that's okay. And, and your version of gentleness might look different than someone else's version of gentleness, I get that. But I think if you start with these two things, your goal and your view you will at least be a little bit more gentle, a little bit more careful, a little bit more intentional in the words you say and how you say it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us truth. We thank you for giving us grace. That as we look even at the example of Christ on this earth, he was full of grace and truth. God, we have been given the task as Christians to stand firm to fight against error. But yet we follow your son's example who did so with a spirit of gentleness and meekness. Lord, give us grace to view people correctly and to have the goal of winning souls for Christ.